Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15 is where we are in our study of the most amazing book, the most important book ever written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so God is very wise to command us to have a time during our week, here at the very beginning of each week, to feast upon the word of God. And I take very seriously the responsibility to shepherd the flock. And what a shepherd has to do is he has to make sure that the sheep are getting fed. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ told to Peter after he met him there in Galilee following his resurrection. He asked him, Simon, do you love me? And he asked him three times, do you love me? And each time when Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he said, feed my lambs. And here we are, the flock of God, and I'm a lamb as well. And we need to be fed spiritual food. And when we get used to that diet of spiritual food, then we can't accept any substitutes. Religion just doesn't do it for the soul that has that hunger and thirst for the Word of God. And so may God continue to give us that hunger and that thirst for His Word as we extend the invitation to more and more hungry lambs out there to come and feast upon the Word of God. Romans chapter 15 I'd like to read the text for us here, and then we'll just spend some time talking about and enjoying a lot of precious truth that is here in this part of God's Word. Now, before I read it, let me say one other thing. The Word of God in the New Testament is largely given to us in the form of letters. In the Old Testament, you've got Psalms and Proverbs, you've got the law, you've got all kinds of history, and then the words of the prophets. But in the New Testament, we have something unique that we didn't have in the Old Testament, and that is personal letters from the apostles and even personal letters from the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to the church. And this shows us that in the new covenant, there's a new work of God that creates a relationship that didn't exist under the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the people were under the law, and that's what the scripture was written as, laws. Laws aren't that relational. Laws aren't that personal. But letters... Letters are very relational. Letters are very personal. And so as we study through the letters of the New Testament, we're reminded that the Word of God is not just full of doctrine and power, not just truth, but that the God that we serve is also a God of personal relationships, of fellowship, and of love. And this passage here in Romans really helps us to see that in very clear ways. We've come to the end of the doctrinal section of the letter to the Romans, and we've come to the personal conclusion to the letter. So follow along as I start reading there in verse 22, down to the end of the chapter. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there... By you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, 
I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This passage has a lot of great points in it, and we're going to be dividing it up into four on the outline. At the end of the service today, I have another handout that you can take home with you that has the outline on it and also has application questions that you can take home and spend time with your wife, your kids, and be talking about how to make sure that the Word of God is being applied in our life, because there's a lot for application here in this text and that handout that we'll hand out at the end will really help you to make that application. Now, as I've thought about this passage and how you're going to tie it all together and what's the big idea that God wants us to learn from Romans chapter 15, verses 22 to 33, the big idea seemed to be plans and prayer. That we make our plans and then we ask God to bless those plans and you see that in Paul here very well. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, came to me this week as I was reading this text and praying through. Proverbs 16, 9 is a famous proverb. You've probably heard it before. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Here we see the Apostle Paul writing about his plans, his plans to go to Jerusalem, his plans to go to Rome, his plans to go to Spain. The travel plans of the Apostle Paul laid out and then we have in Scripture, in the book of Acts, from chapters 20 through chapters 28, the record of how this actually went. When Paul goes to Rome, how does he get there? Does Paul make it to Spain or not? Does he have a successful visit in Jerusalem as he is hoping and praying here in the last part of this letter? It's neat to see how God records the plans of the Apostle Paul, the prayers of the Apostle Paul, and then the providence of God in establishing his steps all along the way following this. So we're not just going to be in the book of Romans, but we're also going to spend a good part of our morning in the book of Acts to see how the providence of God established Paul's steps. But first, let's talk about Paul's plans to visit Rome. He starts off in verse 22, look in the text. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So Paul wants to get to Rome. He made that clear in the opening of the letter. Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 10, Paul had written, verse 10, he said, Always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul had been praying to be able to visit the city of Rome, the church that was there, and to preach the gospel to the unbelievers in Rome for years. And now he's finally getting to have that come to pass as he's writing this letter in preparation for his visit. Also, in chapter 1, he had indicated his long desire to visit when he wrote in verse 13, I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So, Paul wants to make sure 
that the believers in Rome, the church there, know how long and how much he has wanted to come visit them. Why? Why is Paul taking pains to communicate this at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter? Paul doesn't want the church in Rome to think that he doesn't care about them. The sentiment could be in the hearts of some of the believers in Rome that Paul only cares about the churches that he has started. He only cares about the churches that he's spending all those years and time with. And here, we're a Gentile church, largely, and we've been serving the Lord faithfully for years, and Paul has never come and visited us. And here we are in the most important city in the world, the capital of the empire, Rome itself, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, isn't here. He must not like us or something. And so it's easy for people to get the wrong idea, and we have to be careful to communicate our genuine love. This is something that all of us need to take to heart. Sometimes, men, we can be a little insensitive to the feelings of others, and we can just say, well, I don't have to say I love them. They should just know it, right? And so Paul doesn't take that approach with the church at Rome. He doesn't say, I shouldn't have to tell them that I love them and that I want to visit them. They should just know it. Well, maybe that's true, but at the same time, people have a tendency to question. People have a tendency to doubt. People have a tendency to say, well, I don't know that I'm loved. And here Paul is making sure to communicate his love to the church at Rome very clearly because his actions could be interpreted the wrong way. So, principle here for all of us. Communicate clearly your love for people so that no opportunities for misunderstanding arise. That's very important. That's something that I have to constantly remind myself of in my marriage, with my kids, with the church family, with everybody that you have to be careful to clearly communicate your love because otherwise doubts arise in our hearts. There might be a time where you've had some conflict with somebody and you think that it's resolved, but you don't really know. And then you see them and you wonder, I wonder if they still like me. I wonder if they still want to talk to me and still be friends. And, And so you don't know what to do in that situation. Well, here's what you do. You do what the Apostle Paul does. You communicate your love. You make it clear to that other person, whether they've forgiven you, whether they've accepted you, whether or not they're feeling warm feelings towards you, you communicate your warm feelings towards them, and that's going to go a long way to dispelling their doubts and their fears about the relationship and to reestablish the relationship in strength. Because There's more to life than just knowing the truth and believing the truth and preaching the truth, and that is that we need to live together with love and with affection. And Paul here is a great example of that for all believers. I think one of the reasons why God had Paul as his choice was that by God's providence, he was going to write to the church at Corinth, and he was going to write to the church at Rome, and he was going to write to the church of the Philippians, and all these letters were going to show that heart of affection in Christ, the love, the unity that we have because of our common faith and our partnership in the gospel. So, Paul tells them, the reason why I have been so often hindered from coming to you is this. And so this points back to the previous verses. What did he say back in verses 20 and 21? He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And so we find out from this verse that the Apostle Paul, 
He had a mission. He had an ambition that was given to him by the Lord to preach where Christ had not yet been named. And so, because the church at Rome was already established, because someone had already brought the gospel of Jesus Christ there to that church, he wanted them to know that the ministry that God had given him was to plant churches. And since their church was already planted, it wasn't at the top of his list of what he had to do to be faithful to his commission. So it wasn't that he didn't have a heart, that he didn't care for, that he didn't look forward to and long to spend time with the church at Rome. It's just that it wasn't his job to go there in the same way that it was his job to go and start churches where there was no church. And so the... Understanding has to go both ways. The church at Rome has to understand who Paul is and what his mission, what his ambition, what his call in life is. And Paul has to make sure that he's communicating that even despite being busy with other things, that doesn't take away from his heart and his love for them as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the understanding has to go both ways in order for us to really enjoy the fellowship that God has called us to. Now, when he says that he's been hindered from coming, well, that's talking about all the problems that the churches in Macedonia have had, how he's had to spend so much extra time pastoring and preaching, and churches that he had established and that were not yet able to go on their own and be fruitful without his involvement, and also all the persecutions that he had been facing during this time. So you can read all about the busyness, the intensity of Paul's apostolic ministry in the book of Acts, and that will help you to understand how he had been hindered from coming to Rome because of all the work that God had him doing from Jerusalem all the way around about to the province of Illyricum as he preached the gospel. Now, Paul mentions here that he looks forward to enjoying your company for a while. That's there at the end of verse 24, that he's going to go to Spain, but he's not going to go to Spain until after he has enjoyed the company of the Roman church for a while. And so think about it this way, that as Paul travels and starts churches, he's got the churches planted throughout Asia Minor, throughout Macedonia, throughout Achaia. Rome already has a church, and so the next thing on Paul's mind is, is I've got to get west. I've got to get to Spain. And as he looks forward to going to Spain, he knows that he has this ambition to spend time with the church at Rome so that he can build them up in their faith, he can be encouraged by them. And when he talks about enjoying their time together, this is a way of referring to mutual edification. That when believers get together... We build each other up in our faith. That your love for the Lord Jesus Christ is an encouragement to me to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ and the testimony that you're able to tell of how God has been faithful to you that encourages me to trust God in the circumstances of my life. Your knowledge of God's word is a blessing to me. And likewise, my faith, my love, and my knowledge is passed on to you. And this is the enjoyment that believers get from one another in Christ. This fellowship, you see, is refreshing. You look it down at verse 32, and Paul comes back to this idea of his, his visit to Rome, and he says in verse 32 that he's going to come with joy and be refreshed in your company. 
And I hope that the fellowship of God's people does that for you. After a, a busy week, after things going wrong and having trouble in the world, that when you come together and you eat together, you visit with one another, you sing together, you enjoy the Word of God together, that this is a refreshing time for your soul. I don't want you to go away from church and feel like you've been drained. I want you to go away from church feeling like you've been energized for the week that is upcoming. And that's what Paul was looking forward to in his time with the Romans. It wasn't going to just be this, this new pioneering work like he was used to. It's a lot of work to go into a community that has no church and get a church going. And talk to any church planter and you can find out that you do that and you need a vacation. But Paul's idea of a vacation was not to sit on a beach somewhere and drink mimosas. Paul's idea of a vacation was to be in a church with God's people and to be able to enjoy fellowship with well-established, strong Christians. That was Paul's idea of a vacation. And you know what? When I look at my own life and I look at the opportunities I've had to travel, one of my best memories, some of the most refreshing times that I've had on vacation is when I find a church that I've never been to before that loves the Lord, that preaches the Word of God, and to just go and, and sit in that church and enjoy that fellowship. And if you're on vacation, I encourage you, always make sure that on vacation you don't vacate the house of God, but that you find believers in other places who can be an encouragement and a refreshment to you. You've got to go online, look at the website, maybe even like sample one of the sermons that they've recently preached, and, and that will give you a good sense. Is this a church that loves the Lord? Is this a church that preaches the Word? And is that a church that I can go to and really be refreshed on my vacation? That's what Paul was doing. He was looking forward to this time of vacation, this relaxing, this refreshing, together with the Romans. And so he says, I haven't been able to get there because I've been so busy with the work that God has given me to do, but I really love you. I really look forward to spending time with you, and it's going to be so great for me, and I hope to be a great blessing to you, and this is my plan. So Paul is making his plans, and we'll see how God blesses those plans in a way that's a little bit unexpected for the Apostle Paul. Now you come down to verses 25 to 28, and now, transitioning from Paul's plans to visit Rome, we're going to take a look at Paul's plans to visit Jerusalem. So this is great. From the capital of the empire to the capital of Israel, these two most important cities in the world, Paul is planning to visit both, and he has a good purpose. He has a very fruitful purpose in his plans for each. You know, sometimes I'll talk with my wife about our vacation plans and I'll say, you know, wouldn't it be fun to, to you know, take a, a cruise to Alaska or to just go and have a very relaxing trip? And she said, I don't want to do that. If I'm going to go someplace, I want to go someplace where I can be in ministry and be encouraging other Christians and be involved with other Christians. And so if I'm ever going to do a, a vacation someplace in some exotic land, I've got, I got to find some Christians that we can do a service project with or I can do some preaching or a Bible conference or something. And that's the way Paul is. As Paul's making his plans for his trip, he's kind of like my wife, that he doesn't want to go somewhere just to go somewhere. He wants to go somewhere because he wants to be involved in the Lord's work and he wants to be involved with the Lord's people. And his plans for Jerusalem are really marvelous. This is something that we find a lot of information in Scripture. This is a big idea in the New Testament. Paul's visit to Jerusalem that he's writing about here in verses 25 to 28. Let's take a look at it again in the text. Romans 15, verse 25, he says, At present, however, 
I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So he's getting ready, he's packing his bags to go to Jerusalem. As he's writing the letter, you know, he's already got his travel plans, what ship he's going to get on, who's going with him, to go to Jerusalem for what purpose? To bring aid to the saints. Verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So this collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem is something that Paul writes about in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He writes about it in his second letter, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, which we had as part of our scripture reading this morning. It's a big part of the book of Acts, his journey to Jerusalem and everything that happens there that then leads to Rome. And it's mentioned even in other parts of the New Testament as well. And so what was this collection for the saints all about? Let's first talk about the need for it. Why did the church in Jerusalem need this financial aid? The church in Jerusalem was the first church. And so they were the first church to experience persecutions. And when you experience persecution, one of the things that goes along with it is poverty. Why? Why does poverty come along with persecution? Well, because one of the things that happens when you are persecuted is that the governing authorities make it difficult for you to work you get fired from your job. That's one of the ways that persecution comes after Christians. And this was something that was happening in the early church. You get your property confiscated. That was something that was happening in the early church. You can read about it in the letter to the Hebrews. You get imprisoned. You can't make a lot of money in prison. And so if dad's in jail for being a Christian, then you've got the wife and the kids asking for help from the rest of the church. And the rest of the church, they're losing their job and they have hard times. And so it just compounds and there's this financial pressure that is put on the church. Don't think of persecution just as people calling you bad names. Don't think of persecution just as being put to death. There's a lot of social and financial pressure that Satan puts on Christians. And so the Jerusalem church had been experiencing this the longest because they were the first church and persecution was very intense there from the beginning. Now, the other churches are going to learn about this. Persecution in the Roman provinces becomes more common, as we've been learning in our church history Sunday school class, that they're going to get their chance to be poor. But right now, they haven't yet experienced that as much. And so the churches of Achaia, the churches of Macedonia, the churches of Asia Minor, they've been collecting funds from all these different congregations, from Philippi, from Corinth, from Berea, from Thessalonica, and they brought it together to be able to send it back to the saints, the believers in Jesus Christ, who are experiencing persecution and are therefore experiencing poverty on a very deep level. In fact, as you study through church history, the Christian community in and around Jerusalem comes to be known as the Ebionites. And the Ebionites, that's a term that refers to their poverty. These are the poor. And so when Jesus taught, blessed are the poor, well, he wasn't just talking spiritually, although, of course, that's the most important aspect. But the believers in this region were not just spiritually poor, 
in the sense that they understood their need for God's grace, but they were literally poor because they were persecuted for following Jesus Christ. So these poor in Jerusalem, this is something that Paul has a heart for. These are people that Paul has a heart for. And think about this. The beauty of this is that Paul sees the opportunity here for not only helping out fellow Christians who are in need, but he sees an opportunity here to bring together different elements of the church. That the Jewish church and the Gentile church had some difficulties in understanding each other and getting along. We've talked about how throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul is addressing this split between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, which is what Romans 14 and 15 were largely addressing. But throughout the whole letter, he'd been talking about Jew and Gentile. And this theme comes up importantly in Ephesians and Acts and all throughout the New Testament. There's a, a danger that the Jewish church and the Gentile church would become different groups and would not have unity in Jesus Christ. And so what better way to promote unity than by giving and receiving? When you receive a gift from someone, it makes you appreciate and love that person. And when you give a gift to someone, it connects you, it ties you to them. And so here's a practical way in order to create unity in the church, giving and receiving. And so we have to learn how to do both. There's a time where we need to give, and there's a time when we need to receive. Now some of us, we have a hard time with the receiving and, and we don't want to be in debt to anyone. We don't want to be a burden to anyone. We just want to be self-sufficient and take care of ourselves. And so it's hard for us to accept any charity. But you have to recognize that receiving charity is a way of giving to others the blessing of giving. If nobody ever was willing to receive, then nobody would ever get the blessing of giving. And if you don't get the blessing of giving, then where's your reward in heaven for all of the grace that we're supposed to be showing and giving to one another. And so learning how to receive graciously is as important as learning how to give graciously. If somebody gives you a compliment, let's just start with there. That's something easy to give and receive, right? I'm not talking about money. We're just talking about a compliment. If somebody gives you a compliment, don't negate it. Don't say, oh, no, that's not true. I'm a terrible person. Don't compliment me. Um, that might sound spiritual in some sense. That might have some kind of humility mixed in with it. But that's not the right way to receive a compliment. The right way to receive a compliment is to say thank you and to give credit and glory to God for what he's given to you. So if somebody says, you know, that act of service that you did, but nobody asked you to, you just did it because you saw a need and you stepped in and filled the need, that meant a lot to me. Thank you. Don't say, oh, that was nothing. No, it was something. When you say it's nothing, you're telling a lie. It was something. So just say, thank you. I praise God that he's given us this and that and that we can share it together. So just humbly receive the gift and give glory to God. That's how you receive. If somebody wants to give you a gift, don't... Well, you know, there's times where you have to refuse a gift, I suppose. But... Think about, before the Lord, whether or not God wants you to receive that gift and how to receive that gift graciously, saying thank you, and then giving and receiving with love and grace. So 
Paul is planning this trip to Jerusalem for many reasons. Much good can come from one action in the heart of the saints, in the heart of God's people. And so Paul sees the need for it, not only on the financial level, but he sees the need for it on the spiritual level of promoting the unity that God has created in the church when Jew and Gentile, the different ethnicities, would threaten to be pulled apart by worldly and fleshly forces. Now, notice what Paul says when he says they were pleased to do it. He mentions that twice. In verse 26, he mentions that they were pleased to make some contribution, and then he repeats that same idea in verse 27. And this is important. As we had our scripture reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we don't give out of a sense of obligation only, but we give because we enjoy the act of giving. God wants us to be pleased to give. And if you're not pleased to give, I would say probably don't give until you can learn how to be a cheerful and joyful giver. God has other ways that he can meet the need. God doesn't need us to do anything. But God allows us to be involved in meeting the needs. And when we are involved in meeting the needs of other people, that gives us the joy of being gracious the way that God is gracious. And so don't give reluctantly. Don't give grudgingly. Only give if you are able to give cheerfully. That's the kind of giving that God loves. Now, when it comes to this giving, Paul mentions how willingly they gave. This is something that's true in Old Testament and New Testament. I remember when I was reading through the law, and they were taking contributions for the temple. And there was no tax on the people in order to have to give certain things for the construction of the tabernacle. But instead, the people just gave willingly. And the willing giving was probably much more than if they tried to just say, well, everybody has to give this amount or that much percentage. But the fact that they just said, give what you want, caused people to just be happy to give rather than feeling like they were being taxed. And so there is this sense of this cheerfulness, but notice that doesn't mean that there isn't a debt. Verse 27 has the balance. He says they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Now, they didn't owe it to him in any legal sense. There was no law that was written, because we're not under law, we're under grace, where Paul would come in and say, Thus says the Lord, every person in church gives 10% to provide for the poor saints in Jerusalem. No, there's nothing like that. But they owed it in a moral sense. Just like when somebody does something really nice for you, you owe a word of thanksgiving. You say, thank you. That's something that you owe. It's a moral debt. It's not something that you're going to go to jail if you don't say thank you. But there is this moral responsibility that we have. And the scripture makes it clear that there is a moral responsibility on behalf of those who receive spiritual blessings to return material blessings to those who are giving them the spiritual blessings. Now, why does Scripture make this point so often and so clearly? You see it here in our text. It says, For, why do they owe it? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they therefore ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So, the spiritual blessings are blessings that God has given to Israel. Not because Israel deserves it, not because they've earned it, 
but because God chose to give it. And you know what? That's true with everything you have. You might look and say, well, no, no, I'm a self-made man. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I started with nothing in life, and, and now look at where I am. I've, I've accomplished all this. Well, who gave you the ability to work? God gave you the ability to work. And so everything you have is a gift from God. Now, it's up to us to make the best use of, of what God has given to us, but even the power to make the best use of what God has given to us is a gracious gift of God. Once you start to understand your relationship to God and God's relationship to the world, that in Him we live and move and have our being, and that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. And so everything that we have is a grace gift. And if God has given so graciously and so freely to us, then it's our joy to give graciously and freely to others. So the Jewish people, they had all these spiritual riches. They had the promises. They had the Messiah. They had the Holy Scriptures. And now God has taken the Jewish Scriptures and the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish promises and has sent those by Jewish hands and Jewish mouths to the Gentiles. And they've shared the rich blessings that they have with the nations. And so there's a moral obligation that we as the nations have to the Jewish people to be a blessing to them as they have been a blessing to us. If God has given them spiritual riches and he's given us material riches, then we enjoy their spiritual riches and they enjoy our material riches and we have this way of blessing through giving and receiving. The scripture makes this point a number of times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, it says this. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You see, we as people, we have a tendency to overvalue material blessings in comparison with spiritual blessings. Did you know that? You know that people, fleshly as we are, we have a tendency to overvalue material blessings in comparison with spiritual blessings. And instead of this, it should be like this. Spiritual blessings are much more important than material blessings. Jesus Christ knew this. Jesus Christ lived this way. And we as Christians, we should know this and live this way as well. And so Paul, he says to the church at Corinth, you know, I traveled from my homeland. I traveled at my own expense. I put in my own time. I've been imprisoned. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been lost at sea. I've had robbers come. I've had all these problems. And I've come here not in order to make my life better, but to give you the gospel of eternal life. And so, are you going to begrudge me some meals and some place to stay, some material blessings for risking life and limb to come and bring you eternal blessings in God's household? You see the reasoning here? That the Corinthians, they're like, oh, Paul, you know, he's just a mercenary. He comes here and he wants money and he wants food and, and he wants us to help him go to the next place. And boy, he's just take, 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 isn't he? And Paul says, you're not looking at this right. I'm here to give, 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 give. And if I've given you so much, is it such a hardship for you to support me in my ministry? He says the same thing in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And so, to unite the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians together, Paul has been planning and working, communicating, writing letters, sending messengers, gathering it together, and he's going to risk his life going back to Jerusalem. 
Now, why is Paul risking his life when he goes back to Jerusalem? Well, because there's a lot of people in Jerusalem who want Paul dead. Not unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus Christ was planning his trip to Jerusalem and his disciples said, Lord, just the other day they wanted to stone you and you want to go back? Same thing with Paul. Just a couple years ago, Paul, they were looking to put you to death and and you want to go back to Jerusalem? Paul says, I'm willing to risk my life because I care about the Jews and the Gentiles being together as one church in Jesus Christ. The unity of the church was worth whatever sacrifice Paul had to make personally. We can read about this in the book of Acts. In fact, let's do that. Come with me to Acts chapter 20. Back up from Romans. As I mentioned, Acts chapters 20 to 28 cover the time period of Paul's trip back to Jerusalem and his final arrival at Rome in Acts chapter 28. So everything that we're reading about here in these short few verses in Romans, his plans and his prayers, the providence of God in answering those prayers and blessing those plans is all recorded for us in Acts 20 through 28. And in Acts chapter 20, he meets with the Ephesian elders and he's planning his trip. And I want you to actually come down to chapter 21. All right, so they're, they're on their way. Traveling from port to port, city to city, meeting with the Christians all along the way, encouraging them. And he pick it up in verse 7, Acts 21, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So you see how much this trip to Jerusalem meant to the Apostle Paul, how important it was to him to accomplish this good work that would tie the church together both Jew and Gentile. So let's go back to Romans 15 for a moment and take a look at Paul's prayer request and Paul's expectations. So Paul, he expects that there could be some difficulty, and that's why he asked for prayer. But he's also expecting that God is going to bring great blessing from this time. Back in Romans 15, verse 28, as we read, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So he expects to have a successful delivery. He expects to make it to Rome and he expects to get to Spain and start churches there where there are no churches. And he also expects that when he comes, it's going to be a great blessing to him and it's going to be a great blessing to the Romans. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And yet, though he has such wonderful expectations, 
He is not so foolish as to not recognize the dangers that are inherent in all of this and to ask urgently for prayer. Look at Paul's prayer request in verses 30 to 32. Paul ends many of his letters with a request for prayer. And this is a great example for us as well. Sometimes I find myself thinking, well, I don't want to ask for prayer. You know, other people, they need prayer more than I do. I don't want to ask for prayer. You know, I'll just pray for my own prayer requests and and God will answer that. Don't be afraid to ask for prayer, Timothy. And, And you also, don't be afraid to ask for prayer. In fact, this would be a great application to add to what's on the list this week. When can you be asking for prayer? What should you be asking for prayer about? Because Paul, you could think, well, you know, Paul, he's been doing this for years. What does he need prayer for? He's not this new apostle. He's not this new missionary who's going out green and unexperienced. He knows what he's doing. He'll be fine. No, no, no. That's not the right way to think. It's not just the young and the youthful and the inexperienced who need prayer. It's all of us. We are all weak. We are all helpless. We are all sheep in danger, and we must be committed to prayer or else we will become the prey. Listen to what Paul says, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Notice that. He's appealing to them by the Spirit and by the Lord. The Lordship of Christ and the love of the Spirit. That's great. You've got this wonderful combination of the authority of Christ. I appeal to you by our Lord, but also by the love that is in the Spirit. So this is not that Jesus Christ doesn't have any love or that the Spirit doesn't have any lordship. They have both of them together. This is one God and three persons. But it brings into balance our responsibility as well as our willingness, the authority side as well as the emotional side. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, notice this phrase, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So Paul is bathing this trip, his plans, in prayer, but that's not good enough for Paul. Paul knows that not only does he need to be praying fervently for this, but other Christians need to be fervently praying, even a church that has never met him before. Paul is asking for prayer from a church that he has never met. That's pretty bold. And that shows you how much Paul would always be asking for prayers, and we see this in all of his letters. He's asking all the churches that he writes to for prayer for his ministry, that his ministry would be successful, that God would bless his work and his plans. And so we don't want to do anything without asking many Christians for their prayers, striving together with me. That phrase, striving together, it's actually the Greek word from which our English word agonize comes from. It's wrestling, it's struggling, it's striving, like you're in a wrestling match. Those of you who have been wrestlers, you know what the agony of the struggle of wrestling is like. And that's what prayer is like. Prayer is like wrestling with God. That's why Jacob wrestled with God, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, a very early picture, lesson about the nature of genuine prayer. And this is something that confuses Christians sometimes. We wonder, well, why do we have to wrestle with God in prayer? I mean, doesn't God want to give us gifts? Isn't God good? Do we have to overpower God and and make him bless us? No, that's not how it works. It's not that God isn't powerful enough to stop us from wrestling prayer requests out of him. It's not that God isn't good enough that he needs us to be wrestling prayer requests out of him. But God only works through us and in us when we care enough about the outcome. 
you as parents, you know that your kids ask you for a lot of stuff. And you don't give your kids everything that they ask for. But if your kids wrestle with you long enough asking for something, they haven't overcome your resistance. What they've done is they've shown how much they want it. And so when you wrestle with God in prayer, you're not overcoming his resistance. You're showing God how much you want it, how much you value it, how important it is to you, and then he's happy to give it to you. Because he doesn't give precious things to people who don't value it. Wrestle with me, Paul says, in prayer on my behalf. And what does Paul pray for? Number one, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. The unbelievers are those who are disobedient. In fact, literally, Paul says, be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. And it's paraphrased as unbelievers because that's what he's talking about. But we're talking about people who are disobedient to the gospel. People who are disobedient to the call of God to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were a lot of Jewish people living in Jerusalem who were disobedient to God's call through Jesus, through the apostles, through John the Baptist, to repent and believe. And these were the ones who wanted Paul dead. These were the ones who would threaten his life. And so Paul prays for deliverance from those disobedient in Judea. And not only that, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. This is an interesting prayer. This gives us insight into the fact that there is a danger that the Jerusalem church would refuse the gift. We talked earlier about how not only do we have to be gracious givers, but we have to be gracious receivers. Why would the church of Jerusalem, if they're so poor, if they're so persecuted, why would they refuse the gift? There was a deep-seated animosity, ethnic hatred, by the Jewish people towards the Gentiles. And there were a lot of Jewish believers who had a hard time accepting the idea that Gentiles could be born again through faith in Jesus Christ and have equal spiritual standing together with the Jewish believers. Don't think that as soon as somebody became a Christian, all of their animosity towards the Gentiles disappeared. No. There was a lot of suspicion. There was a lot of animosity still within Jewish Christians in Jerusalem towards Gentile Christians. And there was a danger that the Jewish Christians would say, no, we don't want help from you Gentiles. We'll take care of our own problems. Thank you. So Paul's praying that the church in Jerusalem will receive the gift graciously and that by God's will, Paul would come with joy and be refreshed in your company. Now let's go back to the book of Acts and wrap things up by looking at God's providence. How does all this play out in point of fact? Back to Acts chapter 20. Move into Acts chapter 21, where we were just a little while ago, and come down to verse 17. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Answered prayer number one. The brothers received Paul and the emissaries from these Gentile churches gladly. That's an answered prayer. On the following day, Paul went in with us, Luke speaking of the us, to James and all the elders who were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, all right, 
Here's where we're transitioning into part number two. So prayer request number one is answered. Now let's look at something else. They received the gift. They received Paul. They're rejoicing in the salvation of the Gentiles. But doesn't mean there's not some problems here. You see, brother, James, the elders of the church, speaking to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. So we've got a, a big number of believers in Jerusalem among the Jews. In fact, it wasn't yet clear in history whether Judaism was going to become Christian or whether it was going to become rabbinic Judaism at this point. There was a chance that Christianity was going to become the dominant faith among the Jews in Jerusalem and not be a minority. How many thousands there are who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. All right, so the Jewish church was still very zealous for the law. Now, Paul has taught, the New Testament has made clear that Christians, even Jewish Christians, are freed from the law that we have been caused to die to the law through Jesus Christ so that we might be free from our relationship to the law and be married to the Lord Jesus Christ, that the new covenant has come, and that the old covenant is passing away. But a lot of these Jewish Christians, they're not ready for that yet. They're still thinking, we've got to keep the law. We're God's people. We're the Jews. Moses gave us these commandments. We have to keep Moses' commandments. And so they were not ready to go all the way where Paul was already in his heart and his mind. And so does Paul make a big stink about this? Does he say, no, we're not under the law. I'm not going to take a vow and pay these expenses. We've got to teach these Jewish people that they're not under the law. No, he doesn't do that. He's gracious. He's humble. He's there to promote unity. And he's not going to try to straighten them out in one day. And so he goes along with the plan that James and the elders of the Jerusalem church give. And he goes and takes the vow. But... During this process, while he's purifying himself and he's going to the temple, then the problem from outside occurs. Those who were disobedient to the gospel call in Jerusalem find Paul in the temple and they decide that it's time for action. So God is going to deliver Paul from those who are disobedient in Jerusalem, but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be probably exactly how Paul planned it and envisioned it. Let's take a quick look at that. Chapter 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, so these are Jewish people from Asia Minor, where Paul has planted all these churches, they see Paul in the temple, and they stir up the whole crowd and lay hands on Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So there are lies about Paul that are being circulated, and here's some of those lies. That 
Paul was defiling the temple according to the law, and in fact, Paul was not doing that. Verse 29 makes it clear that some of their assumptions about Paul were not actually the case, and so there are false accusations flying. And so they drag him out of the temple, they shut the gates, they're seeking to kill him, they're beating him, and then you see in verse 31 that the tribune of the cohort notices this riot. And so, in verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, that's the crowd, they stopped beating Paul. (laughs) We weren't doing nothing. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains in fulfillment of prophecy. Remember, thus will the Jews do. They're going to bind Paul, arrest him, and hand him over to the Romans. And so he's bound with these chains. They're asking him who he is and what he's done. Some in the crowd are shouting one thing, some another. And so he can't get the facts. And so bring him back to the barracks. We'll sort it out when we get away from the loud crowd. And verse 35. When Paul came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he asked for permission to speak to the Jews, and he does. They listen to him for a little while, but then eventually he's carried off to prison to find out what this is all about. You can read the rest of the story from here in Acts 21 through Acts chapter 28 about Paul's many trials, about how God delivers him from threats. He delivers him from plots and conspiracies. He delivers him from a judicial murder at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, and that Paul does make it to Rome. And I'd like to end with that in Acts chapter 28. As Paul prayed that he would make it to Rome, as Paul had that expectation, that confidence that he would come in blessing, that he would have a time of spiritual refreshing, before he went on to evangelize in Spain. So it all comes to pass. It takes longer than Paul thought it was going to. It's a little bit harder than Paul was hoping, but all of the blessings do in fact come at the right time. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 28. Start there in verse 14. They found brothers and stayed nearby to Rome for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, the Romans that he's writing to, that we just write about, the brothers there, after two years of Paul being in prison, now they hear that Paul has finally come to Rome. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. He preaches the gospel to the Jews in Rome. And then you come down to the very end of the book of Acts. And the conclusion is this in verse 30. He lived there in Rome as a prisoner two years at his own expense under house arrest. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so this brings us back to where we started. The mind of Paul plans his way, but the Lord directs the steps. He had good plans. He prayed for a blessing on those plans And in the right way, at the right time, God accomplishing his purposes and his plans that Paul didn't even know about, God did answer the prayers of Paul. He did make it to Rome. He did have a time of refreshing. He did get to preach the gospel. He did get to have some fruit in Rome. All the things that he hoped for came true. And history records for us that he made it to Spain. Clement of Rome writing 30 years later, recording that Paul, before his martyrdom, preached in the farthest parts of the West, which would be Spain. 
So, commit your works to the Lord. Commit your plans to the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He might mix in some things that were not the desires of your heart, but then looking back, you'll see that it was all for your good and for His glory. What a wonderful example here in Scripture.